Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, the second in our series retrospective 2020 of Work With Purpose, the uh, the podcast series about the Australian public service. Today's episode we're replaying is an interview with the Secretary of the Treasury, Dr Stephen Kennedy, and the Chief Executive Officer of the Commonwealth Bank, Matt Common. Uh, Stephen and Matt are joined in conversation with Jessica Irvine, the senior economics writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspaper. The episode was released on the 21st of September of 2020, but it does remain relevant today as we seek to manage the economic fallout from the COVID-19 health crisis. And so the conversation is fascinating about not only how uh, industry and government work together to manage the early days, but really looking to Australia's economic recovery, which is now underway, and the important role that government and business will play together. So please sit back and enjoy Jessica Irvine in conversation with Dr. Stephen Kennedy and the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, Matt Common. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Work With Purpose. I'm Jess Irvine, Senior Economics Writer at the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age Newspapers, taking over the mic for this special get-together on the economic response to the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm really pleased to be able to bring to you, you listeners, um, two very special guests and two men who've been intimately involved in the public policy response to the pandemic, particularly from the economic point of view. Um, we're do You can't see this, but we're doing it in traditional coronavirus style via some sort of Zoom meeting. I'm in Sydney with Matt uh, at the CBA headquarters. So that is Matt Common, who is the Chief Executive of uh, CBA. Welcome to you. And joining us from Canberra, from a bunker somewhere, I believe, underneath the National Press Club, is Dr Stephen Kennedy, of course, the Head of Treasury. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Jess. So, Stephen, I'm going to start with you. It's actually um, a year this month since you took over at Treasury and uh, what a year it's been for you. Um, I'm going to ask you both, but here's a quick fire question. If you had to summarise your 2020 in one word, what would that word be? Well, the first word that comes to mind is busy, Jess, but it's not a very interesting word. Um, uh, uh, adaptive, I suppose. It's just—it's been a year where we've just had to adapt to the circumstances that have turned up in front of us constantly throughout the year. So, uh, I'd say uh, adaptive. Uh, but when in, anyone asks me or anyone at Treasury, "How's the year been?" we normally say busy. Uh, so I've given you two. There's a good start. That's all right. I was going to say swear words are allowed, but <laughs> better if not. Um, and how does it compare? Because I'm thinking uh, of your career history. You were right there at the forefront of the GFC um, response as well. Have you had sort of flashbacks to that era when you were in Kevin Rudd's office and designing those sort of stimulus packages? I have. Uh, it has been just, just as busy. Uh, the thing that's been really different this year is how long it's been busy for and how long we've had to adapt to the circumstances. A, a really big difference between the GFC response and the response to COVID-19 was 
With the GFC, we could see a few things emerging and, and then it came quickly and we responded through September, October, November, um, then a pause and then we responded again, uh, the Government of the Day responded again in February and then it was very much about implementation. Uh, the pandemic is is just a constant sort of uncertainty, un- unknown scenarios, if you like. Uh, so it's it's quite different. It starts fast, as fast faster than the GFC, much faster than the GFC, which perhaps we'll talk about in the podcast. And then it just keeps going. So we're running up to a, a budget on the 6th of October and we're still responding. And, and of course, we can all see circumstances in uh, Victoria uh, unfolding and, and, and on a positive track by the look of things. But uh, quite different. It start, it's, has some similarities starting, Jess, but it, it, it just it has stayed with us. A really remarkable year, unique. We're definitely going to get into some of the entrails of that, don't you worry. Um, Matt, <laughs> um, for yourself, do you have a word? Because I'm, I'm thinking of the context that you've come to this. You've had about two and a half years now at the head of CBA. And of course, during that time, you've had a banking royal commission. You've yeah. had a few things on. How has the coronavirus sort of stretched and challenged you? Yeah, well, I mean, the first word that came into my mind when you just asked about it was COVID. I'd say a combination, like Stephen, busy, challenging, probably highly uncertain as well at the, at the moment, really, over the last few months. And, and even the year itself, if you think about 2020, uh, you're coming into the start of the year, very difficult drought. Uh, lots of regions were really suffering. Uh, then we have horrendous bushfires. And of course, that quite rightly, really dominates the start of the year. I think from our customer perspective, obviously, from a political perspective as well, and there's a lot of effort you know, in responding to that. And then you know, a couple of months later, we move into COVID. And as Stephen said, it escalated very, very quickly yeah. uh, in that first quarter. And then since then, there's been sort of, I think, very good constructive uh, work done across business and industry, responding. So, I mean, some of the things that Stephen's team have put together through the federal government. We've just never we've never seen a response of that sort of scale. And then we've gone through these, you know, periods where the health situation looked like it was really under control. Clearly, we've, we, there's been some issues in Victoria. Um, and, and so I, I think for most people, it's probably, it's been a very uncertain year. And that really weighs on, I think, our people, our customers, you can see that come through very clearly in terms of consumer and business confidence. As yeah, well. and you mentioned the sort of um, discussions that you have at a government level, and I thought I would just contextualise for, for listeners why it's interesting to have you both together, because that's the question I asked. I was like, why are, we, why are we doing a double-header interview with these two? And I'm told that you guys just happen to get along pretty well, that you have been in quite regular contact as this sort of was unfolding sort of to the level of, you know, your friendly and, and your text message. <laughs> I was wondering if either of you can remember how you first met. Has your involvement just been since this crisis? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Treasury Department before Stephen took it over, at least from my perspective, there'd always be good dialogue between the banking system. And so typically if you'd, you know, if I'd go to Canberra or I'd meet Stephen's sort of predecessor of it and, and come to the ABA, um, and so it had a bit to do with, uh, you know, Phil Gagens when he was in that role before he went into PM&C. I think what's been really different this year, which because of the scale of the challenges as well, I, I think some of the the ways that both between, um, you know, industry and uh, policy areas have worked really closely. And we, we've certainly tried to 
provide any assistance that we can. And I think one of the advantages of the banking system for people like Stephen is we've got you know, hopefully high quality and high velocity data. So we've tried to sort of open that up. We've had a number of conversations in, you know, in different areas. And so I, I think um, it's really helped that, you know, overall the Australian um, sort of business community is not that la that large. And so, you know, if you can sort of tie in, and I don't understand government as well, but I've seen up close a lot more this year about what goes on and how different areas, you know, work together between Treasury and the Treasurer's office, you know, across the different states. And it's just been, um, I guess, a scale of different policy decisions that have been required at speeds. And having seen how quickly people have had to respond to that. You have a lot of empathy for, I mean, I didn't understand the welfare system particularly well before this year, but I was, <laughs> as I've seen some of the changes required, you know, we get to see what, what it's like to put through significant change and big changes to technology and processes. So I think hopefully on all sides, it's really developed, you know, a good rapport, but also just a much better understanding of um, our, our various you know, businesses and also how we can help. And I think that's been the, the key. I've seen so many examples of, of people just genuinely wanting to help because it's just not a situation that there's an easy solution for, for any business, for any government policymaker either. Yeah, and Stephen, for you, is it a situation where you're, you're just actually able to call up Matt on the phone and say, I need some data on household spending or how, how does that relationship work at your end? Well, um, well, early on, Matt offered to share data with us, as I actually have a couple of other banks and other parties, um, and and we took him up on that offer. And it's been fantastic because it, it's another difference with the uh, uh, GFC, Jess, that the use of real-time data has been especially valuable through through this episode, through this period. Um, the ABS has also actually really stepped up to the plate with its use of the payroll data uh, as well. So the use of real-time data from um, businesses, from the banks, uh, other businesses, uh, we set up a business liaison unit very early on that that is, is more about developing policy issues, but it was a way of, also about hearing very early on from, um, from business about how things are unfolding. Matt can see in his data how our policies are running through his customers. And it's really valuable uh, for us to see how the welfare payments are, are, are flowing through, how they're being spent. Um, a really important input because this is a real-time, uncertain, ad ad adaptive um, period. In terms of a uh, meeting, um, uh, not surprisingly, Matt had a high reputation um, before I, I met him and uh, a couple of people had suggested, I'm not going to name them all, but, you know, people who are really good to talk to, about, talk through issues, who take a really genuine interest in public policy. Um, Matt was one of those people and, and uh, as you said, uh, we clicked. Very, certainly very early on, um, it was very useful to call people uh, like Matt and just seek a seek a view about how things were going on the on the ground, really, Jess, because of how rapidly, which we'll come to, how rapidly things um, uh, move through move through uh, March. But uh, I, yeah, Australia is is still a relatively small place in in your capacity to get out and talk to people, and it's sort of one of the things I've tried to br to bring to Treasury. Um, there's so much good business intelligence. We always understand business needs to pursue its interests, but its capacity to understand how our policies are unfolding is also a very valuable input. So have you got a WhatsApp group? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 what's WhatsApp? What's, uh, 
There's always I'm just joking, I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> we can set one up. We can set one up okay. after this. All right, so let's go to March. Um, I wrote myself a little timeline because things happen fast in March. I thought I would just do the quick summary in case we've all got post-traumatic stress disorder and we can't remember what actually happened in March. It was the Reserve Bank who got out first on March 4 with a rate cut. On March 12, we had $17 billion in cash handouts and small business support. March 13, the next day, Scott Morrison restricted gatherings to no more than 500 uh, people. Uh, March 19, we officially shut the borders. March 20, the next day, we had another rate cut, quantitative easing, and that's the day that the ABA, the Bankers Association, announced loan deferrals. March 22, $66 billion of stimulus, including that boost to JobSeeker. March 22, the same day, the evening of that day, after a National Cabinet meeting, Scott Morrison shut pubs and gyms. And then March 30, we turned around and we produced the biggest single policy in Australian policymaking history, that of JobKeeper, the JobKeeper payment. So what a whirlwind it was. And I wanted to ask um, both of you this question, but Stephen first. what Do you have a defining moment where you sort of looked at this and thought, this is this is very serious. We're going to have to pull out the guns. Was there something that you saw that really scared you? Um, my defining moment was back in February um, because, as, as Matt said, we had a really rapid start to the year. My, I really timed this year from the 2nd of January, which was when I cancelled my leave for January to work through on the bushfires <laughs> when the government was developing its $2 billion response to the bushfires or cancelled leave and, and we... We just had a lot of cabinet meetings and national security cabinet meetings through that period. And then as we tracked through January into February and we began to think about um, uh, the pandemic as it was unfolding in China, uh, my key timing point was I was asked by uh, in one of those meetings about the, a paper I wrote in 2006 about pandemics, the macroeconomic impacts of pandemics. And I remember saying to that person, because that person said, oh, you know, is that going to guide what we're going to do? And I said to that person, I hope not, because that paper was about a very serious pandemic, the type of pandemic that's unfolded. And back in February, we were still thinking maybe this will be a SARS-like, maybe this will be contained in China. Um, but it was at that point, I, I suppose, in my mind, I actually went back and read the paper again, because I wrote it a long time ago, 2006, and started to think, if this goes you know, big, if this goes everywhere, um, what's this going to look like? And so that really switched it on for me. And then, and then that in, in that March period, the first stimulus package is really a package that's responding to a very large international shock. And the next two are about a very large international shock with a domestic shock now very significantly rolling over the top. And, and what I had in my mind, Jess, in those, in those early phases was, um, yes, it was going to be really uncertain, uh, it was going to be really unclear about how things would unfold. And so whatever we began to design after the first package had to uh, operate like a stabiliser, had to operate as if it would respond to any circumstance that arose. And so that's why JobSeeker and JobKeeper are demand-driven programs because they will rise and fall with the extent of the, uh, of, of the, of the shock that we're we're facing rather than being unlike the GFC where we see a shock and then we calibrate a shock, 1% of GDP or shall we do another 2% of GDP? We, 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 as, as Matt said, we're in such uncertainty. We need to put in mechanisms that just stay, that really will stabilise society 
and the economy. Um, and so, uh, and, it, and it was a very quick clip as you, as you read out through March. I remember seeing um, Matt uh, at our offices, I think he called in, with some colleagues in March, and I do remember um, saying to him, this is going really fast, and he, and he agreed, and it did. Mm. Matt, uh, how about for you? When was the sort of point where you thought this is actually going to require us to do this unprecedented sort of loan deferrals and the, all the things that you've you've had to do? Yeah, look, I mean, as Stephen said, it clearly escalated very rapidly in March. I think in that week, the week of the second RBA rate cut, I think there were a number of us together with the governor. I think Stephen was on a video conference. I think the governor opened up with words along the lines of this is a national emergency. I think it was in that week. Uh, and then we were, that was in, that was before uh, JobKeeper, but it was the week of the second RBA rate cut, huge numbers of, uh, we were starting to sort of then process deferrals. Um, so that, that definitely stood out to me. Uh, That's the, the private sort of hookup between policymakers. Yeah, there's the gravity of the moment with with some of the the banks as well about the sorts of things, and I think as you can imagine, the regulators we're just trying to work out, uh, you know, what policy, what things we're going to put in place, and they're also wanting to make sure the banking system is going to continue to support the economy. And then the meeting that Stephen's referring to, which he very kindly. Um, we went up to the Treasury uh, offices and had a few ideas, but novices who know very little about the welfare system because we we're also just trying to sort of glean anything we could internationally and, um, you know, what about this or what about that? And, you know, as Stephen uh, sort of, you know, patiently explained about, you know, the constraints that you're working within as well. And I think what really impressed me during that period and since is, you know, it takes a lot to make big policy decisions very quickly and to move away from... You know, in between, even between those different packages, there was so much that happened in that time. It was an international demand shock. Then we were moving into a very, you know, substantial sort of containment measures that were here, and that's, you know, it's not easy to roll out something of that significance. I mean, the, the scale of the measures that were put in place, that combination, particularly of, you know, job keeper and job seeker, it's not easy for, for a government of the day to do that, nor the policymakers. So let's Stephen talk about the exact timeline, but it was. It's very compressed to try and get that from scratch, and you could see how much effort would it would take from the ATO and others just to technically go and implement it. And um, yeah, so a, a lot of, as I said earlier, empathy for how hard it is to build something like that from scratch, uh, where you're really just in uncharted territories. And you can look at a lot of the international schemes, and one of the considerations was, well, that sort of looks good on paper, but we'll just never operationalise it. You know, it just takes too long. So you've got to get something you can actually implement really quickly. And as you remember, it was basically the end of March and it was sort of the end of April for JobKeeper to, to really kick off, which is an incredibly short, you know, implementation timeframe. Yeah, Stephen, I'd love to know, can you sort of remember whose idea was JobKeeper? Like who was it? Was it Treasury? Was it the government that said, we've really got to just have a massive wage wage subsidy program? We've got to staple people to jobs. Who who was the first person to really drive that? Um. Well, in the in the Treasury itself, uh, the two people who were giving the most consideration to it were um, Jenny Wilkinson and um, Mark Cully. Jenny's the former head of the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office, is now a deputy there, and Mark Cully uh, is one of our um, senior executives. We'd been we and I had people calling me about doing a wage subsidy too, Jess. There had been talk ab- about doing a wage subsidy early on, 
um, particularly because the UK model had come out, the furloughed scheme, so where you pay for people who've uh, been, do- been stood down. So um, I, I can't remember a specific thing, but it, we had internal people thinking about it. Certainly uh, um, the ministers and their officers were interested in thinking about it because they could see it unfolding and it, and it was... Um, in some ways, Jess, it's an obvious area to think about. Almost every developed country has Im- has implemented one of these schemes. So, in some sense, it's it's not novel. But we had to, we had to begin to think about um, uh, how to implement it because, unlike, for example, in New Zealand, where they had an existing scheme they could scale, we we had no existing arrangement on the JobKeeper side to to, to scale. So, Matt's picked up a really good point. The reason I and, um, and not everyone has agreed with this, but the reason I was very focused on JobSeeker first was the system was there and we could scale it immediately. So that was the 550 supplement on the COVID side. And I also think that part of um, uh, the argument I put at the time was not only does it stabilise the economy, but it stabilises the community because they understand effectively a, a basic social wage is thrust into, in, thrust into, um, uh, into the economy. Then then we, as soon as that is done, um, we begin to think about do we do a wage subsidy over the top and, uh, and it's sort of readily apparently you're, you're going to do something and then, we ha- and then we're thinking through what systems we have at the ATO and how to design. Some people wanted us, would have wanted us to do a wage subsidy that tracked a person's wage up to a cap, which was a mechanism used in other countries, in Canada, for example. Uh, but we chose to advise the government and they chose to accept in the end a flat payment scheme, partly for speed, ability, ability to to align it with the jobs with the job seeker uh, with the job seeker arrangement, and then the second thing was, apart from the obvious benefits of attaching people to their employer, the job keeper piece, was we had to assist um, um, Department of uh, Human Services in being able to make this payment to all these people who would no no longer be receiving a payment because. Job seeker goes from about eight hundred thousand to one point six million, more than two million when you include other cases. Uh, their systems were very stretched, so we had two really powerful systems in the Commonwealth: the tax system and the social security system. We used one, and JobKeeper is not just a wage subsidy; it's actually an income payment as well. So if you're stood down and you're not working at all, it's basically another way of getting an income payment paid through the tax system, paid through, paid through an employer. So it, it sort of works on a, on a few different levels and that enables us to, it just puts a whole platform underneath the whole, econo- underneath the whole economy at very uncertain times and, and stabilises it. So the, the, the last thing I'd say is the other benefit we had by being slightly behind a couple of other countries that went out early with their job, their wage subsidy schemes was we could see what they do. And I, I wasn't sure. I think the UK system has worked well, but I wasn't, I was very unsure to be quite honest and not really in favour of just a scheme that spoke, focused only on stood down employees, on what they call furloughed employees. I wanted a scheme that also assisted a business for people in employment and continue to work that played that role. Uh, so, and, and that's, our scheme in the end looked more like the uh, New Zealand scheme, which did both, which did both those things. Um, yeah. And how do you feel, you know, we chose that flat payment. That meant that some people actually got a pay rise sort of if they were casual or part-time, sort of part-time employees. How do you think it stands the test of time? If you could go back, is there anything that you would have done designed differently? Uh, 
Well, since I was so involved in the design, you're probably asking the wrong person because you're, you're always perhaps, uh, you know, going to speak um, uh, in favour of it. We had to think about how it would interact with the social security system. If we had done a split payment in those days, then we would have had people being able to be on JobKeeper and apply for JobSeeker, Jess. And what we, one of the things we wanted to do in a sense was relieve the job seeker system and keep as many people over on the JobKeeper system as we could. Um, and so that's the flat payment also assisted that and it goes with that mechanism of putting um, effectively a flat um, sort of a low social wage across the whole economy. And the last bit was this wasn't going to be unhelpful towards aggregate demand. This was typically people who are going to spend most of the cash that you're going to pass, pass through. And I think that's been true. We've seen that, I think, Matt, in a lot of the data of some of those recipients. They've really just pushed that money back through the economy, Jess. And, and while we had a very significant fall um, in the June quarter, I think it's been a very useful aggregate demand story. As, it, as the program goes on, uh, Jess, then it's reasonable to think about adjustments. But in the early days, I was quite happy with the flat payment because it was really a trade-off between administrative efficiency, aggregate demand, confidence in the community that people were well paid. And yes, some money would spill at the corners. But I think um, if you spend a lot of time trying to track down that, that type of exceptional case, um, then you'll, you'll be too late in delivering the policy response. Yeah, oh, I think you know, overall, the time frame was so critical for implementation. And when you're implementing something like that, as Stephen said, basically from scratch, and you're doing it in, in a matter of days, it's not like the imperfections weren't known. There was always going to be some overpayment. There was never going to be, you can't design anything in that sort of time frame and try to get all of the, you know, the perfect implementation that you would otherwise like. And so I guess at, at the margin, you look back at that, and as Stephen said, at least as we can see the data that flow through our accounts, um, it's sort of it's very minor in the grand scheme of what it's cost the the government and the country to try and put that sort of support system in place. Some of the imperfections are relatively minor, and you know ultimately it gets recycled back into the into the economy. Yeah, and before we move on from job seeker, Stephen, how did it feel when scurrilous members of the media uh, interpreted the the recalculation of the modelling such that the scheme would cost sixty billion dollars less? <laughs> than expected. And you had all the headlines about the biggest bungle, the biggest, you know, what, whatever we were calling, you know, mistake, error, worst mistake in history. I mean, how did that feel when we responded like that? Uh, look, at um, well, not great. Um, <laughs> the, um, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I didn't have any trouble at all with the original costing it, it, because effectively, very quickly, the costing was based on a on a lockdown scenario, a sort of French equivalent lockdown style scenario, the, the sort of scenario that has seen in some countries their GDP fall by twenty percent, as much as twenty percent. In our case, it was only seven. Um, so you know, perhaps, um, and so we advised the government around that that type of scenario because as we we put that scheme down in right at the end of March, and and the caseload was running in such a way. And the community concern was such that we thought we were drifting towards that. And of course, New Zealand would had already moved into that type of arrangement. New Zealand ended up with, I think, about 62% of their labour force on their wage subsidy scheme. We got about half of about about half of that. There are some differences in scope, but roughly speaking, if we'd shut down in a similar way, then our original costing would have flowed through 
at, to be quite honest, at, at roughly the right level. But that's, you know, it's taking me a few seconds to explain that story to you. And so it's hard to get that, that type of piece out um, um, and, and explain how that unfolded. So, oh, look, I, did, I didn't feel good because obviously uh, that's a Treasury responsibility to do that costing, advise the government for the government to make it public. And I thought about should I have advised the range or done it differently? Um, um, I, you know, colleagues advised me not to worry about it. What do they say? It's fish and chips or something or other. Um, you know, the, the, the story will um, come and go. Uh, uh, but of course, you. Um, I thought a bit about the reputation of the institution um, because one doesn't want, as much as one can, one doesn't want to damage the reputation of the institution. But I was quite happy with the policy. And then as it turns out, we've the government has chose to extend it, and we've had a second shutdown, and we're now heading up towards over a hundred billion dollars in its cost. So, it, uh, perhaps, Jess, upon reflection, I should have been um, better in my communication around this. As Matt said, the sheer uncertainty about how these things would cost, how they would wax and wane with the circumstances as they unfolded. I haven't heard the $100 billion figure again. Is that something that tr has been released or is that what we're going to be updated, I guess, you know, well, I, I in think the budget? In, I think in Jeffu um, we went up um, $15 billion. The, it's because of the extension. It, that's, admittedly, Jess, that's because it extends now and then also because it costs an, an additional amount of money. So, sorry, no, that makes 85 But, yes, uh, oh, uh, I'll have to go and check my own costing. I thought that's what it was, but I'll, I think it's somewhere around that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Matt, what is happening for you um, during March? And I'm so I mean I sort of see the two of your jobs. Stephen's got to pe keep people in jobs. Matt, you've got to keep people in their homes. When did it sort of become clear to you that you're going to have to give some people some breathing room on their loan payments? And yeah. who within the banking sector sort of really led that? Yeah, well, the treasurer came to the ABA meeting, which must have been in maybe that was around the 10th of March, and obviously things were starting to deteriorate, particularly globally. But we weren't at the deferral stage yet. I think that came around that sort of time frame that you said around the around the 20th or so. And particularly in the lead up to that, there were as the containment measures started to come down. Obviously, a lot of people were being stood down or losing their jobs. People were very uh, distressed. And so in the lead up to that, both at the ABA level, so a number of basic, which is the bank CEOs with uh, appropriate um, legal support, because it's not easy to get uh, bank CEOs to be discussing topics. You need, understandably, competition uh, approval to do so, and with the regulator, so particularly APRA. Uh, and so there were a couple of iterations with that directly with the treasurer. And then I think there was probably two or three conversations at the ABA council level. And then we uh, agreed on, you know, a range or a package of measures and they were announced. Uh, APRA made a subsequent announcement. And then you probably recall there was a lot of discussion um, nationally around what happens to um, rentals during that period at both a commercial level and an, and a um, and a personal level. So then there was an extension on the repayment deferrals to basically go up to larger businesses, particularly commercial property, where effectively, you know, there was uh, an agreement reached on on the rental space. So that was that was a lot of March. And then you know, obviously uh, seeing the, the significant support that was coming through from the federal government, seeing how that was all sort of playing through. So I think probably there to Easter, sort of where we see 9th, 10th of April, that was really uh, probably the most substantial contraction in economic activity. And then we started to see a rebound, you know, later that month and into May. And 
things were traveling along, all things considered, better than we'd expected, uh, you know, absent Victoria. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess looking forward now, it remains your job, Stephen, to keep people in jobs and your job, Matt, to keep people in homes. We are sort of heading for this fiscal cliff with the the generosity of the JobKeeper payment being scaled back. We've now got discussions with banks and their customers about the loan deferrals, which can't last forever, um, and those conversations are being had. Um, so far, we've held up pretty well, and actually national accounts show that household income was up. Um, how how concerned are you, Stephen, about now if we're, I mean, I'm going to ask you to critique each other, and I presume, Matt, you'll have some thoughts about what Treasury needs to be doing to continue stimulating the economy. And for Stephen, how concerned are you about this idea of loan deferrals where you might, if, you know, if this all starts to wash out, some people can't repay their loans, you do get those for sales and you get a, a house price effect and a wealth effect. How concerned are you about that? Um. Well, it's definitely an issue that we'll need to watch carefully. We we have to continue, Jess, to think about the nature of this, um, our circumstance, or because it's not, we just had Victoria. It's not, it's uh, the Victorian outbreak and now coming back under control. There is a sense in which we all start to think, well, the shock has passed through and now we begin to recover. And we can look around the rest of the world and watch other countries, uh, Israel is a good example just recently, lock down their economies again. So we, we, we just have to remain nimble, if you like, and mindful that we continue to live with a pandemic for now. It, it's incredibly important that the health side of it works effectively. Obviously, a state like New South Wales has done very well. And we're, we're not in a, a sort of any sort of set and forget, okay, we're through the shock, uh, it's all over, let's just um, stimulate the economy and, and away we go. And I think the banking sector is going to have to think very carefully about that too because some sectors may well be viable um, depending on how the health side of things unfold, but we're, we're actually not through it. Matt, Matt will have to be thinking about his, his customers in Victoria versus other states and, and how their circumstances unfold. So, yeah, I think um, it's not that I'm sort of disagreeing with the kind of premise of your question, but it, it, the, 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 the sort of novel nature of this shock remains and any response has to, re, has to be able to continue to adapt to that that we are going to move towards some sort of normal, which is not even clear. It's not clear when a vaccine, exactly clear when a vaccine turns up and even how widely it's developed and how behaviour changes thereafter. So we have to begin an adjustment to do some normalisation. Uh, I think the um, ABA and the banking sector more broadly has done a very good job at getting out and engaging those customers who can get back and begin their repayments. And I understand, Matt, quite a significant number of businesses have. For those sectors that remain very badly affected, um, it's going to have to be a very careful, uh, careful adjustment and almost some forbearance and a continued watching of circumstances, Jess, would be my perspective. And Matt, how long can it go on for, though? Can you be a, the CEO of a bank and say people never have to repay their loans? Is it not inevitable that some people are going to have to uh, be foreclosed on or be moved on from their loans? Yeah, look, I mean, there's definitely going to be some very difficult circumstances. I think to go back to the start of your question, I think collectively what we've achieved is a cliff. We've avoided, sorry. So I think we've got now an orderly transition and that, that avoids a cliff, both at a fiscal level and from a banking perspective. I mean, secondly, one of the things that's really stood out is just how important 
I mean, health policy probably is the most important economic policy in the country at the moment and the interdependency between those two. So in terms of the health outcomes and how that plays out, clearly what happens in Victoria, what happens in borders, tourism, I mean, more than half our population growth comes from, you know, net overseas migration. That's that's a hugely important element of our prosperity going forward. So we've, like the federal government, tapering their support. We're moving a number of, you know, hopefully the majority of customers across the industry will be in a strong enough position to restart their repayments, which most people, their initial six months, uh, ends around the end of this month. Um, and then we'll be trying to target more of the support to those who need it most. And we're getting more than 60% of requests for assistance at the moment are coming out of Victoria, which makes perfect sense. There's other industries which are disproportionately affected and it's, got, you know, it's completely outside of people's control, obviously, in some of the services sector, hospitality, tourism. So certainly not indefinitely, but the idea would be, and there's enough flexibility that we have within the financial uh, system and with the regulators to at least provide you know, up to another four months around repayment deferrals going into calendar 2021. But we also have to realistically assess every customer at an individual level and ensure that they will be in a position to restart. And if they're not, and there's no point just kicking that can down the road. Uh, and so, I mean, we are in a very important period. I think it's sort of felt like that every month since March, but I think, you know, this month is in the lead into the end of the uh, end of the calendar year. And no doubt Stephen's very busy, you know, advising the federal government around the budget. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, it's really probably the most important budget in living memory. Uh, what are you hoping to see from Canberra in that budget? Well, I think they will be, be very focused around job, yeah. uh, job tax creation. Cuts. Do you think tax cuts are appropriate? Well, I'm, I, I suspect that may be on the agenda. I, I think the number one, two and three priority for Australia over the next few years is going to be job creation and trying to reduce unemployment. We're going to finish an unemployment rate somewhere in the order of 10%, depending on participation rate. That's... That's a significant um, headwind and also causes you know, real impact socially. So I, I, you know, a lot of focus, no doubt, at the federal level and I think also has to go in at the state level yeah. uh, to think about that. And, Stephen, what's in the budget? <laughs> I'll, I'll, um, yeah, Jess, I'll just get my um, prompts out and read it out for you. Broadly um, from an economic macro perspective, though, <laughs> would it be uh, responsible to continue having fiscal strategies set at a stimulatory? Because if you don't do anything more now, you've got fiscal strategies set to be contractionary with the withdrawal of these payments. How, how appropriate it is for us to meet that what's going to be phased out with additional support is now the time to be turning off the taps. Well, um, there's, uh, there's two, two parts to this. One is that um, monetary policy is accommodative, but it's not supporting in the same way that it, would, that it did in the GFC or in other cycles. So there is more pressure on fiscal policy to support this economic recovery than in living memory. Um, um, pot, you know, possi possibly ever really, because of because of where we are near the zero lower bound with uh, with interest rates. And um, an example that we've used um, uh, with the treasurer is that I think uh, interest rates were cut, let's say, by around four and a half percentage points in the GFC, and that's equivalent to about a hundred billion dollars of fiscal stimulus, roughly, after about a year. So, so. Uh, there is going to be a need to continue to provide support for aggregate demand, and Matt is 100% right. The top three priorities of any budget at the moment are jobs, jobs, and jobs. The uh, Jess, the only thing to think about with fiscal policy is that um, uh, stopping it 
or tapering it and and then delivering it in another way doesn't necessarily mean everything turns off. A, a really good example is we saw in the June quarter the household savings ratio rise to 18%, uh, one of the highest household savings ratios we've seen. We've actually put an enormous amount of money into the pockets, into the balance sheets effectively of households and businesses. In some cases, it's just offsetting. In some cases, it's even more. And and, but people are being very precautionary. Uh, uh, hopefully, if they're, as Matt said, they're confident around the health arrangements, they begin to spend. And so it's not just a cliff. The money will continue to flow out uh, in, in a smoother way than, than what the fiscal estimates uh, um, um, suggest. The, the other part is additional fiscal stimulus, it builds on top of. So a fis- the fiscal impact of spending is not to sort of raise something and then it falls back. It it will has it has an impact. It lifts the economy to our new to our point, and then it's a question of whether you need more fiscal stimulus to continue to lift it. It's a little bit like when uh, uh, you hold interest rates at a lower level to keep them accommodative versus sort of taking money out back out of the economy. So. Um, there's no doubt there's going to be more need for aggregate demand, but we also need to make sure every other form of policy, be it around credit provision, be it around dealing with businesses, uh, the creation or even insolvency of businesses, every form of policy that helps uh, the economy adjust to generate more jobs, not just money, has to be switched on uh, as much as possible to generate as many jobs as possible. And is it your view that we do need further fiscal stimulus given the lockdown in Melbourne and the situation that there should be further fiscal stimulus on top of what's happened? Um, uh, It's my view that we're going to need more support for aggregate demand in the the period ahead. And just quickly, tax cuts do support aggregate demand? That is one of the policy measures that would work? Do you want me to get that sheet out with all the policy measures <laughs> on it, Jess, and let read it yeah, out for you? Yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. All right, well, we are running out of time. We had some fantastic questions come in from the Future Leader Committee of the Institute of Public Administration in Australia, who does has organised this podcast. One from uh, Megan Aponte-Payne from PMNC, which was about the use of modelling and how important that's been, and I think we have covered that. Um, and, and a second question from Michael Sinise from PwC was about the impact of this crisis disproportionately hitting low-income workers and women. So just quickly, um, would you both sort of agree that we are sort of seeing that impact being felt by low-income people and and women and what, if anything, we should do specifically about that? Very quickly, it's hitting young people particularly hard or or downturns do, and this one is hitting young people hard. We have actually seen quite significant recovery in women's employment, uh, but it did hit women quite hard initially. So uh, a lot of our focus as we think about this next phase of support is around um, the characteristics of young people and low-skilled people who are most affected, partly because of the nature of the industries most affected. So I'd agree generally with the premise and it is a focus for us. And I presume, Matt, a focus for you in dealing with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've similarly, we, we see it in terms of across different uh, cohorts, definitely skewing to some of our younger customers. And I think Stephen's explanation is, you know, is spot on. You can see some of the sectors that have been hardest hit tend to skew towards, you know, lower income, certainly a uh, high proportion of 
female participants in some of those services industries, hospitality, tourism. So clearly trying to restart parts of the economy are going to help there. But as part of that job creation and you know, income inequality as well has been a you know, a, a real focus both for Australia but also globally and, you know, arguably that's going to get – that's gotten worse over the last sort of six months. So I don't think that as an issue is going away anytime soon. Look, I think you, you've had an interesting 2020, both of you, and I think it's going to be an interesting 2021. And I think we should definitely set up the WhatsApp group and have <laughs> me in there. And, Stephen, you can share what's in the budget and we can hash that out together. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks, to both of you and thanks to IPA for, for organising this opportunity for us to, to go over some of the really important um, machinations behind the public policy response to the coronavirus. And thank you to you both for joining me. Pleasure, Jess. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jess. Great to see you. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, a great conversation. And thanks again to Jessica Irvine for hosting that conversation with Dr. Stephen Kennedy and with Matt Common. A great interview. So... I hope you are still enjoying a great holiday wherever you are in the world. Uh, I'll be back with the next retrospective in two weeks' time. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 